0: Building a community to support your brand is seen as the cornerstone of most businesses today, especially in e-commerce where the digital tribe has replaced the traditional customer order books. This kind of transformation can be pretty tough for most companies and it can definitely take a long time, but it's something that most need to consider to keep up with the competition. In this episode, we'll hear the story of how a 300-year-old tailor became digital overnight by fusioning with a London-based equivalent. Together, they've modernized the customer experience and managed to find new customer groups that previously were pretty distant from their businesses. It's a story of how to enhance customer experiences and tear down barriers while keeping track of the core offering and the heritage. To tell us this story, which is about friendship, innovation, and building a community, we invited my old friend Joachim Hatzel, CEO of Götrich Tailoring, and the founder of Savile born Cad and the Dandy, James Sleeter. Götrisch opened for business in 1730, which makes them one of Sweden's oldest family-owned companies. In December 2017, Götrisch was bought by a group of friends and Joachim took over the role as the tailoring company's CEO. Cat and the Dandy is the independent tailoring company based in London, who during their ten years in business have become one of Savile Row's largest tailoring houses. Since then, both Gottrich and Kat and the Dandy have managed to find a new, younger customer group for bespoke tailoring by combining heritage with new digital processes. It's never felt more right to say, hold on to your knickers, because here they are Joachim Hotzell and James Leader We're so happy to have you on the show. <laughs> And you okay, well, I got to start with this. I remember like five, six years ago when you were like going to London all the time and you were making suits, and all of a sudden you were best friends with this James, who we got on this show. Uh, just tell us what happened.
1: <laughs> well, actually, um, so it started started uh, was that now 12 years ago or something, uh, when um, I was working as a concierge, probably around 2008, 2009 and i was working in in uh, as a consultant and i was wearing a suit every day and i remember when i got into consulting uh in 2005 uh everyone was still uh wearing a suit for work and i remember feeling a bit sort of uh, uncomfortable in the way people were dressing so you had these two different styles of dressing. You had the old guys that had been around for, for many years and they were uh, wearing these very boxy, very roomy, old, like uh, Hugo Boss style uh, suits. And then you had the younger guys who were more fashionable and they were wearing these super tapered, super, um, super skinny uh, suits. And I just didn't look like the look of neither of them. So I, mm. I started. I started to sort of research how how do you actually wear a suit to look good, and and that, of course, is as many will have noticed, is a, is a little bit of a rabbit hole. You can you mm. can go on forever, and you can look at uh, inspiration from. Uh, you know, actors, Hollywood actors from the 40s and 50s, and and uh, and then you can go back as far as you want. And and then I realized that I had to s- try to do something with that. And then I uh, found this new tailoring company that was started by two young bankers, James and Ian, and mm. and they were uh, they were just starting up on Savile Row. So I I took the chance uh, when I was over in London and and booked myself in. And I think. James, we spent probably two three hours that day just discussing cloth and and tailoring and and uh, the craft, uh, and that that's where it all started.
0: And James, you remember this Swede then coming in through the door?
2: I do because you know it, when we first uh, set up the business, you know we very much just thought you know we just had to compete with one street, mm. and then actually the moment you launch your website, you realise that actually you're not just competing with one street in the sense of Savile Row, you're actually competing against the world. So we had a couple of um, international orders from, you know, from Russia and, and, and from Sweden in the early days. And it was just, you know, I remember it's a bit like when you get your first appointment in the UK, you're kind of like, wow, crumbs, we've actually got a customer. And then you yeah. get your first sort of foreign customer, you know, flying in to see, and you're like, wow, we've actually got our first guy flying in to <laughs> see us. You know, it's not just a local guy that's walked past the shop. So, you know, it was great So actually it's you know, it was, you know I mean, every customer coming through the door is exciting, but actually, you know, it's, uh, you know, it. it it probably made it more special for for Yuka coming to London to get a suit, and uh, it obviously made it more mm. special for us making a suit for a guy flying in for the experience. And you know, he's not he's not half a bad guy, so you know, we've got, we've got, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not all good. But you know, we got on, we got we got, on, we got on quite well, and uh, you know, we're able to sort of chew the fat on a lot of uh, a lot of mutual ground.
0: Yeah, and and Cat and the Dandy. At that time, could you yeah. tell us? I mean, you, where were you at that time, and how had you all? How, how had you come there? I mean, what was what was your journey until there?
2: I was a credit trader, um, yeah, working in the city um, for a French bank, which which was which was great. I mean, you know, it was at the credit crisis. I covered Scandinavia, including uh, uh, Nordea and lots of other sort of um, uh, you know accounts, and it and I had great fun. But you know, it was the credit crisis, and it was probably you know the hot seat to be in and. Mm. I, on the side, always just suddenly, you know, was always thinking, well, you know, I I want to do something a bit more creative than just sort of moving numbers around on a screen. Um, Mm. So I kind of set it up on the side, a tailoring um, business, uh, you know, and and did about a year's worth of sort of research and development, just making sure that actually, you know, there was genuinely sound business case, and I I could put all the sort of functions in place to make the business work. Mm. Um, And then sort of come... Uh, December 14 was a, my official start date with uh, with, with the company uh, that I founded <laughs> yeah. um, because that was the day I basically got fired. So, um, mm. you know, and, and Ian, who is my business partner in, in, in CAD, was, you know, uh, been running it sort of, you know, sit relatively single-handedly for the for the months leading up to that. So and we just hit the ground running because it was there were so many negative stories in the press about, you know, bankers were the devils and and that manufacturing mm. was going to get us out of this sort of economic quagmire that the world found itself in. So it was a really lovely story that a lot of uh, newspapers and television shows and magazines picked up on that there were, you know, these two old sort of devils. Uh, from the city that have now sort of made good and are going back into sort of traditional craft and, and manufacturing. So we, yeah. we went We went from, you know, day one of, make, you know, month one, I should say, of making, you know, about 10 suits and nine of those were for our, you know, friends and family and one sort of paying customer to the following month. where I think we sold, you know, 150 suits.
0: But, I mean, you're, you're today, I mean, you're a very digital um company. But I mean, yeah. back, what was it like when you started? Was, because I know you made a very, you made a pretty bold decision there to go digital quite early.
2: Yes. And I think it's, you know, if you look at any business, you know, what, what is the, the function that allows scalability is the use of technology. Mm. And, it, yeah. and if, if we don't use technology, you know, we just become like everybody else. And it's, it's it, technology can be used in a way that we don't compromise on anything that we do when it comes to the craft. You know, we don't cut any corners, but actually it just means that because obviously we have a place in Stockholm, we have a place in New York, we have a place in London, mm. we, can, we can have it that every single person in the company seems the same, sees the same real-time information. Whereas if yeah. you go to an old school tailor, they have to go to a filing cabinet or that your tailor has to remember who you are, what stage he's at, where he's at, and that there are so many moving parts in this and any business whereas mm. all of ours is just digitally stored in the cloud, it updates in real-time information, so I can see that uh, Trouser X is being made by Peter, and it's going to be ready in two days' time. In simple terms, it makes our life simpler by using technology.
1: And you yeah. can see, I guess, the. the- <laughs> The key in in digitizing a craft-based business is that you, as James is saying, you don't cut any corners on the craft side, but what you use technology for is to make sure that you maximize the amount of time that you spend on the actual craft instead of Mm. using all the time for admin, customer interactions, planning, purchasing, all of those things. So in a sense, you can say that... um, it's a way of also ensuring that you can still keep going with the old traditions of the craft and make sure that you hand make the, the the garments in the same way that you've always done and that you spend as much time on the pattern making and the customer interaction when you have a customer in the shop, but you don't spend hours just communicating and sending out letters and emails and stuff like that. So it's a, it's, yeah. it's a quite a delicate uh, approach to digitization compared to uh, to if you start with a Properly digital business from the from the get go.
2: Exactly. Mm. So we we digitally st- store all of our patents for all of our customers. So whether we make it digitally or whether we make it by hand in the get in the outset, we digitally yeah. store all of those. So you know I don't know what the Swedish equivalent is, but you know Paul Smith in the UK or John mm. Smith is you know everybody is called this. So we <clears> have <throat> we have uh, five customers I think called Andy Murray, not the <laughs> Andy Murray the tennis player, but we have five, <laughs> no. five customers called Andy Murray. So. Yeah. Uh, every single time you have to try and remember which paper pattern belongs to that specific person. Mm. Whereas if you can digitally store that and you say Andy, Andy Murray with his email address in it is like the file name, you can never yeah. make a mistake. But also most importantly, you can find it immediately. We've made mm. 55,000 suits and at one point we literally had an aircraft hangar full of paper patterns. Mm. And it, it was just yeah. the most inefficient uh, thing. But and also like from a risk perspective of that burning down We would lose all of that sort of intellectual property of all of those customer suits. That's one thing. The other
1: thing is that, I mean, as as, uh, I think it was yesterday, we had a guy in that came into London to have his measurements taken. He did the cloth selection, then he was back in mm. Stockholm, then we did the first fitting on that customer, and then, you know, depending on where he's going to be for the third fitting. Uh, we will then mm. make sure that his garments will be in the in the place where he wants to come, and that's also something that you couldn't do without technology. You need to have that sort of information sharing capabilities in place to be able to 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 run like that. Yeah, mm. exactly,
0: exactly. And I, I'm just thinking back then. Uh, so, James, when you and your partner there, Ian Myers, when you decided to do this and go go into tailoring on Savile Row, I'm just thinking, you know, that's that's a pretty a significant challenge to take on
2: it isn't it isn't wh- wh- um in the sense that when when in 2008 when we were doing our sort of research into uh, my family used to make cloth, so i you know i kind of n- n- know the trade and ian's mother was a uh, couturier so you know we, we were involved yeah. you know in the peripheries of everything um mm. but when we were looking at the business we were kind of thinking you know if you want to go and buy something, you want to know the price. But not one company on Savareau in 2008 published its pricing online.
0: Mm.
2: And there were so many barriers for, to get a customer through the door. They wanted to make themselves look austere, they weren't particularly welcoming places, they only ever spoke about how expensive everything was, and it just put off a wave of people. And it, if mm. we, we just thought, well, you know, we're young guys, we're, we're, you know we've been making a pound or two. Um, and actually we want to get some you know get get a nice suit and pay a fair price for uh, you know a fantastic product so mm. actually filtering out all the stuff that savaro did wrong uh, and 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 saying right we want to be the counter to that actually really made it relatively easy for us from from the outset
0: you mm. when you when you uh decided to partner up with some some friends and buy gottrich i mean do you think you would have done that if you didn't know James? Or how, did you, do you see that, how do you see that challenge? I mean, that's a pretty similar challenge as I see it, at least.
1: Or how do you see that? Yeah, I, I guess it started in the, other, in the other end. So it was more mm. that we started discussing, James and Ian and I, you know, how do we take this fantastic business that's, that, that they have created and they have built up over, was it back then, five, six years? And that has gone from being nothing to be the largest tailor on Savile Row. Uh, and yeah. how, and how do we, you know, utilize that capability in Stockholm? Because I felt that we didn't have anything in Stockholm that sort of was up to that level of standard. Um, mm. So we started uh, with doing trunk shows. So Ian and James were flying over. Maybe was it twice a year or three times a year? yeah and we started seeing and that that was the colleagues of mine, friends of mine, relatives and we mm. started started out in my living room basically and and um, just a tape measure and a few cloth books and then we went out to uh, to see Stockholm by night uh, so mm. we had a, a lot a lot of lovely evenings together, and we just realized that there 's something here that seems to attract a lot of people sort of the the whole idea of you know building a relationship with the tailor having a uh, you know an, an evolving sense of you know s- styling details and per, uh, personalization and things like that it f- it's something that people very easily connect to emotionally so we mm. we decided that let's let's try this on a bigger scale so we set up a a big trunk show we called it um uh what was it we called it best of british or something and we we um set it up in Liedmar Hotel. We had the British ambassador come to do the opening speech. Uh, we had Land Rover sponsoring. Uh, we did a full-on, like, uh, uh, weekend event where mm. we got coverage in Dagens industry. We got coverage in, in uh, all of the sort of men's fashion uh, papers and magazines. Mm. And we, I think we just sort of, uh, exceeded all the expectations we had commercially. I mean, there were so many people coming in to order suits and to buy pocket squares and ties and uh, braces and accessories of of all sorts. We had a shoe company that came along, and I think was it six companies that came over from London that uh, that took part. Um, so it was a it was a big success. And um, and then before that, we had already started toying with the idea of buying a. Uh, traditional tailor in sweden to uh, uh, to actually see what we can then do with that and and this weekend event became our market uh, survey, if you will it was sort of a test mm. test balloon. To see if there if there was <laughs> something there to uh, to try to build on, and and yeah. um, immediately after that we just went ahead and we already had a discussion with Elisabeth Gertrich, who was the the last of the family uh, in in the Gertrich family to own the company, and uh, and if. Probably two months after that event, we, we closed the deal and Elizabeth was absolutely over the moon that someone with such a, a passion and and joy for the craft and for the, for the whole idea of bespoke tailoring uh, was willing to take over and, and bring it on to the next generation.
0: So we've got these two really beautiful stories about Cad and the Dandy and Göttrisch that we've just heard. But I mean, just for the listener, could you just describe uh, what your collab- collaboration and the
2: business, what does it look like today? I, th- I think that when anybody thinks of Savaro they traditionally think of heritage mm. um, and, you know, the traditional methodology of, of, of making, making a, a business like that work. And when you think of CAD, you know, we've only actually been going for, you know, 11, 12 years. So we don't necessarily have that same heritage, but the, the idea of us buying Guterich actually means that we have almost the perfect blend between you know the, the heritage and the, the huge amazing archive that Guterich has and the history, um, yeah. and then you know with Cad we've got the sort of you know the exact sort of flip side on that in the sense that we've got you know a totally sort of modern approach to the business the utilisation of technology. And I just see it as sort of the perfect blend of, uh, of the two worlds. Uh,
1: yes, I agree. And, and the way that it works in practice is that we still have the old goethe Atelier with the same tailors. So we operate in the same way that that the, sort of the old version of Goethe did. But what we've been able to do is that from day one, we could plug in the cloud-based system that CAD had, had built up. And then we can, uh, on, a, on a very flexible way, uh, we can then decide how we implement the different uh, components of the business in our processes on a daily basis. So it could be, you know, sourcing cloth. So when you buy cloth, uh, the the pricing of how when you source it will be very much dependent on the volumes. And being a small mm. tailor with only three, four employees in Stockholm, of course, make, makes it really difficult to have any purchasing power towards the big uh, mills. Whereas CAD, mm. being the biggest buyer in the UK, already has a uh, contract under which all those uh, prices are governed. So what we do is that we just go onto the system, we put the cloth order on, and that will then be sent automatically to uh, to the location where it's going to be made up. So that's 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 mm. one thing. Then the other thing is that we also have so we have the atelier in Stockholm where we have the the Goethe tailors, but we also have full access to the ateliers of Cat and the Dandy with with over a hundred tailors. So regardless of how many orders we take in, we can always then digitally find the right tailor to make that particular garment. And as James mm. often says, uh, Tailoring has nothing to do with terror or or geography. It's all about just making sure that you have the right skills. It's the right pair of hands that does the right task, which means that we can then, you know, decide that when we've made the pattern and we've done all the sort of the work uh, before we put the order through, we can then, regardless Mm. of, of where that person is in the world, we can then get started on the garment and the production of the garment, which we also means that we can then cut the lead times quite a bit. So it's it's all sort of a centralized hub for both mm. uh, creating patterns digitally, sourcing cloth, and then it's a production planning system. And then on top of that, there's the customer interaction, so that you also get you know notifications when your suits are ready for fittings, when, you, uh, when the suits are made ready for a pickup, or whatever it might be.
2: Just to put some flesh on the bones about how big a difference purchasing power makes mm. in, our, in our industry, yeah. if, if, if I was to go and buy a button from one of the British merchants that sell buttons, mm. a, horn, a horn button, so you know, uh, the best button that we can mm. buy, would cost us about between pound ninety and £2.90. Mm. We buy them directly from the, the farmer who, who, who grows them, in India for 31 peer button. Mm. So you have 10 uh, buttons on average on a jacket. Mm. So, you know, we're buying 10 buttons for the same prices that we would buy one from in the UK. Yeah. And no, no buttons are made in the UK. They're all made either in China or India, you know, and so by going direct to the source, you're cutting out so many middlemen, <clears> <throat> but all these tailors that are only making sort of 100 to 300 suits a year, they have to buy each button for each job whereas we know that we're going to make 5,000 blue suits this mm. year, I know that I can commit to buying X amount of, you know, blue dyed blue horn yeah. buttons. Yeah, I can imagine. And it, 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 it's amazing how much, you know, just with the efficiency of business and, and knowledge and also regulating your cash flow, that how much of a difference that can make to not having to charge 5,000 pounds for a suit but charging 2,000 pounds for a suit.
0: You look at your industry, I mean, that... <clears throat> for me uh, has has a very as you, as you said earlier the heritage is long and also the way of of the craft and the way that these uh, your competitors are to still work i know some today i mean it seems very still very kind of traditional and then you guys have this setup i mean for me that's a that's a mind-blowing kind of transformation or or difference
2: one of the main things we differed from everybody from from the outset is we charged everybody 100% upfront mm. for an order. Now, most on, people on Savile Road traditionally wouldn't charge anything. Mm. They'd maybe charge a deposit. Nowadays, they probably charge about 50%. There's an old English saying that said, you only ever pay your tailor when you go mm. in to buy your mm. next one. So everybody was front, all these tailors were front running all this risk of other people from a customer base that travels that you can't control. And fundamentally, my argument on it was, if I'm a builder and I build an extension on your house, I can knock on your front door and say, right, it's now done, hmm. it's, it's with you. Are we okay to settle up the invoice? If I've got your suit hanging up in my shop and you're in Kuala Lumpur, I can't say to you, right, pay, 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 come and pay for the suit. So you're, uh, controlling your cash flow is very difficult for any business, but doing it from a tailoring perspective um, you know, is, 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 is another level of confusion. So when we set up and we say, right, we're gonna charge everybody up front, and this is why, Every, everybody in our trade said we, you, you won't be able to do it because no one ever in our trade has ever done it mm. that way. And actually, it's one of the, the easiest, simple things. And once you explain it to a customer that's the reason why we do it, I, I, I don't think we've had a person in the last two years that said oh, that doesn't make sense.
1: And that was also mm. one of the hardest things for the uh, for the old tailors in Goethe-ish to uh to accept that we implemented this straight away in, in the new uh, updated Gert- version of Getish that that we took payment uh, on day one, and as James said, we it's so easy to uh, to explain why we do it, and um, we also say that we then we don't have to take any credit risk, we don't need to uh, charge the customers for any credit losses. So us having a background mm. in finance, all the all the um, uh, co-owners of this has also made it easier to to speak in those terms and to, to reason in those terms. Mm.
0: But I'm just curious also about your view of the future in this case, because I think this in like consuming less or consuming better instead of more. I think how do you guys see that? I, and I mean, from my point of view, you're pretty well positioned in,
1: in that type of a of a future. Yeah, I mean there's been talk about that for a long time, and we we haven't really seen it happen. Uh there's still quite a big demand for like these um uh fast fashion type uh product. But I think mm. what we're seeing in Götrich in Stockholm is that we really have a growing customer base with people that are, are tired of that way of consuming, people that are in, in mm. it uh, to stay. So even though we've just been uh, running the new version of Götrich uh, for two and a half years, we have a lot of customers that are coming in for their fifth or their sixth order. Uh, and that's something that I think uh, sort of. But but on the other hand, we have, we're a very small business in in relation to the whole market in in fashion. So it's difficult to say that you can point that out as a trend. I think in general, mm. when it comes to sustainability, I mean we have a, a naturally sustainable business. We only source natural fibres, and we go to weavers that are working in a traditional way, that are using. Materials that are made to last. We're, you know, as James was saying before, we're crafting the the garment to, to be able to stay around for a very long time. So in a sense, we we never have to explain ourselves in that from the sustainability point of view, and and hopefully that mm. should should play out to be in our uh, to our advantage. But uh, but we're still sort of operating in this microcosmos, which is not, uh, you know, saying so much about the market in general, but it says something about, you know, our little market around central Stockholm, where people are working in in banks or law firms or or accountancies.
0: I'm going to take this segue into the future a little bit by pulling up this week's listener question so it it reads um, I'm the CEO of of a family business that has an older client base we're looking to attract younger or new customer segments and we know that it's important to build a community with your customers how do you do that so this is the question and i have been thinking about this question and thinking about you guys because i know that you guys have been working a lot with creating a community around uh, your business so what would you say to this
1: the ceo here i think uh, it's a great question first of all and i think it's an important question for for many businesses to to ask themselves Uh, So what we have said is that despite us having 300 years of of heritage in Goethe, I mean, it was founded in in 1730, which is quite staggering when you think about it, how different the world looked uh, back then. But it's that we have agreed to never be overly nostalgic. You're not, you're Mm. not coming to Goethe because of the fact that we made suits for a king in the 19th century. I mean, that's not why you're coming. I mean, it's a it's a lovely story, and we love telling it, and we're super proud about the heritage. Mm. But you're not there to look like Oscar and Andre, right? You're look you're there to look like someone who's who, who's uh, gonna be wearing it for the wedding this summer, or for the for the office, or for the board meeting, or whatever it might be. Mm. So that's yeah. one thing to sort of to sort of not fall into the trap of of just talking about the past all the time. That's one thing. The other thing is to to, as James was also pointing at uh, before, is to remove barriers. If people mm. think that you need to have a title or have a father that was a customer or uh, you know, have something uh, very sort of f- fancy in order to be able to, wel- to, to be welcomed through the door, then that's going to keep a lot of people away. And I think that was one of the big things that Cat and the Dandy did uh, 10 years ago was to remove the barriers from becoming a Sablero customer. I don't think I mm. would have sort of ventured in to be, you know, to Huntsman or to Poole or to Norton or any of the lovely, fantastic establishments if, if um, you know, when I was 29 years old and, and working as a consultant. Um, mm. So I, I think a lot of it is to do with um, just making sure that you, you put people at ease and, and have a welcoming approach.
2: Definitely, and I think um, the user experience, you know, if thinking back to my sort of conversation, I don't like shopping, mm. and you think about what it is I don't like shopping, it's I don't like, you know, the queuing, the waiting, the browsing, all that sort of stuff. Whereas, you know, so we've, we've put a, a coffee shop, basically, in, in our shop in London and New York with a super amazing coffee machine, and we rotate the beans on a weekly basis, so we're serving different coffees. We've got a bar in here. So, you know, people can actually enjoy the process, mm. And and sit down and relax and and not feel sold to because fundamentally when you walk into a tailor's you know that someone's going to try (laughs) and sell you a suit that's part of the reason why you're going but it's also part of the reason why certainly from an Englishman's perspective you kind of get a bit sort of scared and intimidated Mm. Um, whereas if you can actually just say look you know this is not the hard sell you know you're here hopefully to choose what you want I'll guide you as much as I, I can and I'll hold your hand through the entire process but before we get into any of that sit down. Have a, have a coffee, have a whiskey, have a gin and tonic, make yourself at home, make yourself relax, enjoy the process. Mm. You know, it, this is a different thing that you know what we're doing. And it's it's not about, you know, the old school tailors, you, to go in there, you had to be referred by an existing customer. Yeah. <laughs> who, because he basically had to vouch for your credit. Mm. He had to vouch that at the end of the process that you'd pay for the Get suit. Back to
0: that old thing that and you needed to pay. Yeah. yeah.
2: And, and, and so it's, it's um, you know, it's, spin it on its head and, and get people to enjoy the process. Because if they enjoy the process or, the, or, or enjoy the business or being part of it, they'll tell people mm. about it. And word of mouth is the biggest the biggest um, source of new business for us. But, you know, if, if you see an advert, you know the company's put it out. But if someone advertises you as a third party in saying, hey, look, these guys do their products this way, they're great, I found them to be this and that, that's the best advert that you can get. And most importantly, it's free. That's
1: one thing. And I think also what, what we're trying to do both in London and in Stockholm is to also make use of our facilities in more ways than one. So instead of just, you know, seeing customers, booking appointments and, and then, you know, waving them off, we also have mm. in the evenings, we do whiskey tastings. We can do, we had uh, an event planned for for April, but that was, of course, canceled uh, where we mm. invited the the cloth weavers from, from the UK to come and talk about, you know, how they source their raw materials, how they weave the cloth, what they think about when they put together their design books and things like that. And we, we want to make sure that being a customer in Göttingen is more than just coming in for a purchase. It's also, you know, if you want, you're also welcome to take part in, you know, whatever events or social gatherings we, we organize. Uh, on the other hand, there is no obligation. So if you just want to come in, place your order, and be out the door, then we're perfectly happy with that. And we, we always have a, almost almost like a mantra is that we love all customers. And it doesn't matter if you mm. buy a pocket square for, for 900 kroner or if you buy a full wardrobe for over 100,000, that's, I mean, we love you equally anyway. And we think that's mm. a feeling that's important for people to, to, to experience when they come through the door. That we don't differentiate and think that one customer is better than another, and and have uh, opinions about that.
0: In the old, I mean, setup of a tailor and that traditional model where you needed to vouch for some someone with the, for the credit or something. I mean, I can understand that you know a, c- a community back then is of extreme importance. But I'm thinking now in like an e-com like you guys are, in a way. Then, I mean, in what way do you think that uh, building a strong community is
1: important for e-commerce? I think it comes back to what James was was talking about, like the word of mouth and the, the, the validation of, um, you know, the, the purchase decision. So if you know that all your friends are, they love a particular brand of a car or they br- love a particular brand of, uh, you know, a travel destination or whatever it might be you will mm. automatically be attracted to that. So you will then say, Let's, I'll give that a try. And then most likely you will like it because you're seeing that through the lens that, that's already validated. Your friends are already putting their stamp of approval on it. And I think in the mm. world of e-commerce, that becomes increasingly important. I mean, you were uh, discussing this with uh, Magnus Ormstetz the other week about the social validation of purchasing in China, I think it's equally important in Sweden and in the UK and in Europe and in, in uh, wherever you might be that when you remove the interaction with a shop attendant or a physical location that you come to, then something else needs to then give you that level of trust and le- give you that level of. Um, commitment to the purchase, especially with tailoring, which is a relatively pricey type of product.
2: And also, I think that with the, the community, you know, you have to kind of stand for something, you know, going back to the analogy of people walking around with big logos on mm. T-shirts and things, people buy that because they want the mm. logo. When you when you buy something from, uh, a, you know, retailer like us or, you know, the higher end companies that don't put logos on things, you know, it's that community that means that you stand for something. Yeah you know, whether it be, I don't know, Filson, who makes sort of, you know, American outdoor wear, you know, for, you know gloves for chopping wood mm. and amazing bags, you know, they're creating a sort of lifestyle capsule collection of products mm. and that you know that those gloves are going to last you because you bought a bag and that lasted for mm. 20 years. Yeah. And and I think that's, that's the real importance, you know, you have to stand for something and, and, and your brand message has to come through on every single product. You know, it's not, any point in selling a pair of socks because you can buy those cheap, it's much better to buy the best ones yeah. and use that product to show that you're selling the best socks and that also re turn, means that everyone can trust you that you're also selling the best suits.
0: I'm thinking about then building that type of community. I mean, I, I, I want to know kind of, the, and I think it would be really nice if we could answer back to the listener kind of what what buildings building blocks uh there are in building like a strong community
1: first of all i think people connect to people rather than brands right so one of the things mm. that we are very uh say clear on is that what we're running here is a people business and we are actively you know interacting with uh, with our customers and we you know the same faces that you see in our Instagram feed on our, our, our advertising uh, will be the, the faces you meet when you open the door to our shop. That's That's one thing. Mm. And then it runs over all the touch points. So it could be, you know, like James was saying before, it's the in-shop experience. So, you know, making sure that people feel comfortable, that they don't see themselves as being out shopping, but they're rather spending a really nice hour, uh, you know, sat in a in a comfy sofa with a glass of whiskey in front of them, flicking through cloth books. That doesn't feel like a shopping experience. It feels rather that something you, you would want to spend your Friday afternoon doing. Uh, next thing is to, to um, do what I also said, run these events and invite customers. So even when they're not, Buying anything, they're still coming into the shop and they're still interacting and they're still sort of uh, you know, taking part in whatever type of of dialogues or or discussions we have and of course, we have the the uh, let's say the benefit of having a a very personal business with a lot of personal interaction so coming back mm-hmm. to the story about how I you know became a good friend of James and Ian's was that all those interactions Doing fittings, selecting cloth, making style decisions, whatever it might be, led to us, mm. you know, growing a friendship, and then that led us to you know meet at the pub instead of meet in the tailoring house. Um, so I, th- I yeah. think um, a, a lot comes down to just having that personal experience, and and then mm. then you have to translate that into your communication. So if you're posting mm. on Instagram or on Facebook, or if you're you know running digital ads or newsletters or whatever it might be, then that needs to shine through. So we're using our own faces quite a lot. We're using, I mean, uh, we're not uh, exactly models uh, to... to, uh, Can can you speak for yourself?
2: Would you mind speaking for yourself in that
1: regard? (laughs) Of course. (laughs)
2: Uh, But but we still like to show
1: up on our pictures every now and then just to make sure that we we don't uh, lose that personal touch on our communication. Yeah.
2: So. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we, we, mm. we took the decision from, from our first photo shoot, you know, we, we did our first photo shoot for the measly sum of a hundred pounds. And basically all of our friends that bought suits, we said, right, we'll turn up at seven o'clock in the morning by the Bank of England, we're going to do a photo shoot. And, and that really mm. set it the tone for us as a business of actually saying, what is the point of us giving a model a suit that hasn't been made for him? Because it doesn't represent no. fair value of what we're actually doing. You know, and Mm. uh, it makes just much more sense to use customers as you know as our models. Mm. We've made the suit for them and let the work speak for itself. But going back to that, creating a community, I think it's also really important to sort of you know add value to to, you know to the proposition. So it's not you know from us you're buying a product, but it's about how we add value to you buying that product, passing on information, Mm. making you enjoy the experience having you in for a cup of coffee inviting you to a wine event inviting you to a different thing that we're doing taking you to the rugby or you know whatever it is it's like adding value. it's it's something different you're coming in to buy a suit but we're going to try and give you so much more along the way i have seen both of you in the ads and and
0: um looking at that there's something about you know true substance in what you guys are are building in that community of yours how do you how do you see that as as uh being being authentic
2: I think, I think it gives the people, you know, customers and people that view us the sort of the greatest reflection of who, of who we are. There's no, there's no <clears> point <throat> trying to, you know, to, to cheat people and, and put on, you know, supermodels on our website. Because not everybody that <clears throat> walks through the door is a supermodel. You know, just take Yuka as an example. You know? <laughs> 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 he, is, he, is, he is like the rest of us, just an average Joe. And they're the, cu- they're the customers we want because that, that represents the world. So it, it's, it's mm. much better that we are you know, authentic in, 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 in telling our story and, 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 our, you know, and the work that we produce. There's, there's no point mm. in trying to airbrush things and, and, and put a suit on that someone that's not been made for them. It, you know, no. It's about reinforcing every single turn without ramming it down people's throat that every single person on our website is either a member of staff or a customer. And the same for all of our social channels, either a customer or a staff. It's not a paid model. We've never paid for models, and I, I hope we never will.
0: Mm. Another building block that I think we touched on earlier is, is this about uh, tearing down barriers. I think you touched on it there uh, a bit, but I th- I'm just curious if you could just let us in on, you know, what you've done to 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 make it more accessible for a new audience to go into
2: your business? Yes, I, 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 interesting.
1: Oh, sorry, go ahead, James.
2: Yeah, look, we well, go, going back to um, you know what I said when we when we first set up the business. It was you, you mm. needed to have the information readily available, rather than have to fight for it. Because if you can front end some of that those questions, you, you immediately lower the sort of barrier of people to come through the door. So going back to the point on price. Mm. You know, we we basically said t- on our website from the get-go, we want to be absolutely clear about how much everything costs. That there's no two-tier price structure. Yeah. You know, if you're a, a rich Arab that comes through the door, you pay the same price as uh, the next English guy that walks through the door. There's no sort of hidden mirrors or you know du- duplicate pricing for people. Um, and if mm. you can afford an Aston Martin, you still want to know how much it is. And If you can give people the information about how you make things, you can explain things to them without sort of trying to teach them to suck eggs, but people can delve deeper if they want to, you you Mm. immediately lower that barrier of risk of uh, people coming through the door that they're not gonna understand what it is you do, that they're gonna, even now we still get people coming through the door, uh, you know, who are you, grown men sweating with fear because it's the first step on their journey. And you know, it's, it's our role and responsibility to kind of put them at ease, but everything so that people, <clears throat> pe- yeah. So people, people think they need to know
0: a lot of things before they come in. So exactly. Say. And, exactly. I
2: mean, and whether you're yeah. 20 yeah. or whether you're 60 mm-hmm. and it's your first suit, everybody's been at that point, the first time any of us take up a hobby, the first time any of us go mm-hmm. and buy a bottle of wine or choose a wine from a wine list, we've all been there. We all know what it's like to be a rookie in something. To, to not have any information or knowledge or particular understanding of things. And I don't think any of us should ever be you know, apologetic for it, but we need to make it that we, we can give people the, 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 the clearest, most concise information that they need, and obviously different people want to understand and know different things. and, and We've got to make sure people, we don't try and make ourselves appear sort of aloof we had a customer about, this is four or five years ago now, so I'm hoping that the world has changed a little bit. But we, 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 had, we had a customer that came into our shop and he said, oh, look, I'm interested in buying a dinner suit for my wedding. He so, said, okay, how did you hear about us? He said, well, actually, I didn't hear about you, but I went into another shop on the street and they wouldn't tell me the price. They just kept, hmm. they kept saying it was frightfully expensive. I so, said, well, it, it might be hmm. frightfully expensive, but, you know, shall I be the judge of it? whether I can afford it or not, you know, think of Mark Zuckerberg. If he walked down the street, apart from everyone recognizing his face, you would think he was, you know, just an average Joe. He's not an average Joe. Yeah. <clears throat> but nowadays, you can't make an assumption on who anybody is. Uh,
1: if you think about the, the difference between the customer base that we have in Gertrude today and what we used to have when we took over the business, it's, it's an enormous mm. difference. Um, uh, we had a, probably an average age of 60-plus Uh, before we came in. And then just by changing our approach to communication and our approach to the business, we now have everything ranging from, you know, your Mark Zuckerbergs of Sweden to people working in fashion shops, uh, like 25-year-old guys that are super excited Mm. about it. And they will, of course, come in with a different... um, viewpoint on what they want to do, you know, how much they want to spend and how much they want to to uh, put put through as, as their first order. But mm. it's it's something that is very, very visible that just making sure that we communicate in a way that's much more welcoming makes it easier for mm. those guys to come in. You don't need to fulfill any criteria that we have to become a customer of ours. It's everyone's welcome if you, if you are uh, excited about the products we make.
0: And I think, I mean, these um, building blocks, I think for me seem pretty generic. I think you could apply them to building a community in almost
1: any type of industry,
0: or, or do you agree?
1: Yes, absolutely. But I think it's easier if the product itself sort of hits an emotion. If mm. you're in a, in a very, let's say, technical, business-to-business kind of environment, then you need to think about how you then build a layer of engagement on top of it. But if you have a, sort of a naturally engaging product in itself, which is true for most retail companies, I would say that you have some, some kind of um, connection with your customer's emotions, then, uh, then mm. you're right. Then it's, uh, you can do it in the way that fits your, your audience. Mm.
0: James Joachim, thanks so much for helping our listener get a little bit more savvy when it comes to building a community. I think this was really valuable. Um, I'm thinking about uh, where where we are today in this this spring of 2020, which has been extreme f- from from most people. Uh, I saw that you guys are currently offering this. Uh, Face mask that you that you've made. I think it looks really great, um, and it even made me want to wear one. But I mean, I mean beyond that, what, what what's this spring been like for you guys? I
2: mean, from, um, from from a UK and a US perspective, it's been you know it's been incredibly hard. Um, hmm. Back in the UK, post December, when there was a sort of clear decision on the route of Brexit, the whole economy had this massive upturn. You know, people. People, Mm. even though if they were walking down a path uh, they didn't like, at least they knew they had to walk down the path. Whereas before, we'd just Mm. been stuck at this junction. So December, January, February, beginning of March, we had the most incredible um, start to like a chapter. Yeah, the most incredible start to the year. People again just thought, you know, what we can continue our, you know, our lives. You know, things are things are, you know, ticking along. Um, And you know, Mm. we are now where we are in the beginning of June and. You know, all businesses, um, unless you know, unless you're Amazon or whatever, you know, seem to be, you know, at, at a huge um, disadvantage. To you know, we you know, we don't particularly have a huge online offering. Obviously, as, as bespoke tailors, it's not our main product line. It can't really be sold, uh, sold online. Um, most mm-hmm. of the tailors on, on Savaro only get about twenty-five to thirty percent of their business in the UK. Um, whereas obviously we, having a place in in Stockholm and New York, are a little bit uh, more protected to you know single uh, country economics. Um, but you know fundamentally, I think that you know at, at, at its height we are about ninety five percent down. Um, you know, in uh, in April and May, um, and we and we've had to you know we have to be a little bit creative about what we do and, and how we do things going forward. So, you know, we've started doing a, you know, customer outreach program, you know, you know, traveling tailor, which, you know, in 10 years we've never done, but, you know, I I think Mm. fundamentally we are going into a different world and whether that's only for a short period, you know, time will tell, but, you know, we have to continually evolve and adapt. And I've always prided myself on that. We are the most progressive company on Savile Row and now's our, now's our time to shine. Now's our time to continue showing everybody that we can still develop we can still adapt and we can you know see what the world take you know where the world takes us and and hopefully you know is a the darwinian theory of the, the the strongest will survive you know my my attitude for for guthrish and, and cad is that you know we will be the strongest best placed position tailoring companies to to you know to ride out this storm
0: and if you if you just look you know across the street from you i mean and and the business is on several row uh, has it has it been different for you for you compared to them? Or the, the head, he, the head of that? the
2: Savaro Tailoring Association um, put yeah. out a press release uh, at the end of last week, saying that social distancing and tailoring are not compatible. It's like trying to mix oil mm. and water. And I think that's kind of like a window into the old school Savaro world. I think it's I think it's mm. an absolute. You know, we all. Obviously, Sweden is taking a slightly different approach to, you know, to the UK and the US, but social distancing is going to be the new normal. Whether it's right or wrong, mm. that's not my position to, you know, to, uh, to say. But what I know is mm. that we have government guidelines that says we have to do this. So if we as a business come out and say, well, we're not going to do it, it, it just shows how small minded we are. So we, we will make yeah. it work we will find ways we have, we you know we're, we're already deep into the process of finding ways, you know, where your business is allowed to condu- conduct businesses outdoors. So, you know, we have a, mo- a mobile yeah. tailoring studio so we can take it. To, we take wow. it to people's houses, yeah. not a problem. And, 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 and it's <clears> about being resourceful and adapting and not getting stuck and, you know, in, into a, a way of doing businesses that, that business that becomes then outdated. You know, I, I want to be at the yeah. forefront of, of, of every single development that any tailoring business or retail business, um, that, you know anything that we can do to you know to be ahead of the pack, I'm 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 going to be there.
1: Uh, yeah, and I think Stockholm, we've we've been lucky enough to have a slightly different situation than than uh, than London, that we've still been able to see customers in the shop, but of course customer behaviour has changed dramatically over the last. Two and a half months. We uh, we also in Stockholm. We started the year f- on a fantastic uh, level, and and we were sort of steaming into March with you know all the uh, enthusiasm that you could wish for, and then mm. and then this came along. And we um, uh, we have uh, the doors closed to our shop, but we're still taking appointments. So. You can't just drop in, but you can book yourself in and we will still see you. And then we make we have special hygiene um, routines. So, making sure that everything is wiped off and that we use um, disinfectant to ensure that we don't sort of make uh, the disease spread in our shop. And then we only see one customer at a time, et etc. et cetera. And I think this is when we've really seen the strength of a community. So, yeah. Of course, apart from customers that are regular customers coming in um, you know, to make uh, suit orders, we also have some customers that have just reached out and said, you know, I'll put an order in, I'll come in when everything's over, I'll come in and, and select the cloth, but you can get going on my, on my uh, uh, pattern and things like that. So we, we've had a lot of support from the customers and it tells mm. so much around. Yeah. The value of 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 actually building a community that is real and authentic, that is not just you know a bunch of followers on Instagram, but is something that where you actually have a connection between the customer and the and the and the business.
0: Mm. Yeah, you're a tr- you're a true gang, and people really want to be belong. Like we talked earlier, I think that that's evident at this time.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been Um, great to see. And I think um, now everything seems to be relaxing uh, a little bit. When you walk around Stockholm, you see people, a lot of people in the streets. But I think that we will live with the uh, sort of uh, effects of this uh, of this pandemic for for a long time. And even as we get to autumn, we expect that there will be certain measures that we still need to take in order to protect our customers and, 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 and not be part of the, the spreading of the disease.
0: Um, we've got this uh, recurring question that we want to ask our, our uh, guests, which is, if you have somebody that you would like to, us to interview, or if you want to recommend somebody, and then who
1: would that be? I think uh, in terms of uh, really understanding how to build a community and, and to understand a customer base, I think Peter and Erik who started Sneakers & Stuff, uh, yeah, the big yeah. success uh, in, in um, sneaker uh, online sales uh, that started in Sweden in the, back in the 90s, I think those could have shed probably a lot of light on, on that.
0: That's a great tip. Thanks a lot, Jocke. Um, hey, guys. That's it. That's a wrap. Thanks a lot for coming, and uh, I wish you all the best.
2: Thanks for having us on and letting us tell our story.
1: Thanks for having us.